So can I welcome everybody to the Workers' Liberty London Forum. We meet every month to discuss big ideas, ideas that are having a big effect in the world or things from our history that we can learn from. And we're very lucky tonight. We've got, got Nama Al-Mahdi, who is um, a human rights activist, a socialist in the Labour Party and a member of Labour Cooperative. Uh, movement and um, she spoke recently at um, our annual summer festival which is Ideas for Freedom and I wasn't in the workshop but everybody who came out of the workshop was blown away by it and I believe that um, Nam is going to give us a bit more tonight, a bit more history of, of, of the Sudan as well so looking forward to that and we've got Stephen Wood who is a member of Workers' Liberty and he is also an RMT union activist so Nam is going to speak first and then Stephen second. Um, we welcome questions, contributions, any ideas, any discussion from the floor. And we're going to make sure that everyone gets a big opportunity to have their say. And if there's time, people can make a second contribution. Nama, how long do you want to speak? Um, if I could be given 20 minutes. 20 minutes, that would be lovely. Thank you very much. So the, the, the normal procedure is people just stick their hands up if they want to speak. You take part, yeah? So Nama, thank you. Okay. So I'll start with the recent events and then I'll go back to Sudanese history like uh, from, uh, from independence and take you through um, all the Sudanese governments and what happened throughout and then uh, with the, uh, the recent rupture and the recent uh, Sudanese revolution. So um, I'll have a quiz at the end of my talk on how many Sudanese governments we've had and how many coups we've had and how many civil wars. So <laughs> keep your ears peeled. So on the 13th of December in 2018, the town in the town of Adamazin in Blue Nile State, which is west southwest of the capital Khartoum, women went out to buy their barely sufficient daily bread from nearby bakeries. When they got to the bakery, there was no bread for them to buy. They took out to the streets in protests. The city of Adbara followed. Small localized protests began in Khartoum on the 19th of December, shortly after. A group of a group began to lead these protests. They called themselves the Sudanese Professional Associations. They're made up of parallel trade unions. I would call them revolutionary groups of professionals. Some of these bodies were formed prior to the 19th of December. Of December. Others were formed and joined after the 19th of December. They're still loose revolutionary bodies, not official trade unions. The region's share of wheat, which caused the original rupture in Abdamazin, was used to plug the anticipated wheat shortage in Khartoum. Khartoum, with its 7.5 million citizens, presented the biggest threat to the government. And it was the heart of the government and the, resident of, uh, the residence of tyrant Omar Hassan al-Bashir. Potential unrest in Khartoum could result in an all-out revolution. It happened in, 19, in October 1964 and in April 1985, where People's Revolution have toppled uh, the governments of President Ibrahim Aboud and Jafar Nimeri. All of these started in Khartoum. Inflation rates today in Sudan are 60% year on year, rising from previous year's inflation rates, which were a record high 19% year on year. There was a deep shortage of currency. Workers haven't received their wages for several months. Those who did receive a check from their employer couldn't cash it. There was no money in the banks. The Sudanese jine, which is the Sudanese currency, was literally melting before the dollar. I left it in 2009 at 2.5 jine to the dollar. It's now 80 jine to the dollar. But this wasn't the first economic crisis to besiege Sudan. Um, in the 1990s, when this current government, the, the recently toppled government, was merely a year old after they took power with a non-violent coup, toppling a failed democratic government in 1989, I remember my family stopping by in Saudi Arabia to stock up on basic food items for our family back home. 
instead of taking them gifts like you usually do, we took boxes of soap, tomato paste, powdered milk, and matchsticks. Basic commodities were really scarce in Sudan, if non-existent. I remember at the last wheat uh, scarcity episode, my aunt taught, to how to, taught herself how to make bread from shorgum grains, grains at home. This wasn't the first or second or third crisis. Sudan has been engulfed in one crisis after the other since the 1970s. Sudan gains its, in, I'll go back to the independence. Sudan gained its independence in 1956, one of the first African and Arab countries to gain independence to a democratically elected multi-party government. Unlike other countries in the Arab League who gained their independence to a monarchy, for example, Egypt under the Albanian descendant of the Ottoman Empire, King Farouk, or Saudi Arabia to the emirs of Riyadh and essentially calling themselves the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Sudan was a sovereign country under a democratic government. But the country has always been besieged to war. Prior to independence, Anania I emerged in 1955. It was armed resistance against the marginalization of southern Sudanese in pre-independence negotiations. The post-independence government, which was a, even though it was an elected government, it failed. It, within the three years of the post-independence uh, post governments, we had two successive governments in that short period. Yet both governments failed to govern and passed the Sudan's rule onto military leadership, General Ibrahim Aboud. Aboud was again toppled in a revolution in 1964 after a short civilian, after a short military rule. Um, following that, a short civilian rule, um, uh, a short civilian rule took over the country, and that was again toppled in 1969 by a bloodless coup by Jafar Mohammed Nimeri and the communist and Sudanese Communist Party. Nimeri took uh, took over under the banner of Nasserite pro-Warsaw pan-Arabism socialism, but it wasn't pan. It wasn't pan. It wasn't. It wasn't socialism. It was basically Stalinist state capitalism with Soviet support. But he quickly turned against the Communist Party, who tried to fight back and uh, by attempting to topple him through a military coup. They failed, and this led to the execution of the Secretary General of the Communist Party and other leading members. <coughs> Following the attempted coup, Nimeri kicked out the Soviet support and Soviet military advisors and started to rule by himself. Low-intensity war in southern Sudan, which started pro-independence, continued by, through Anania I. In 1973, brown talks with Anania I in South Sudan reached the peace agreement. South Sudan entered a, a, a self-governed period, and I hear it was a really good, uh, good time for them. The political parties who were asked by Nimeri created an alliance and formed armies supported by Gaddafi in Libya and tried to topple him in a bloody three-day war, which left scores dead in 1976. It was a massacre for those on the political party's side. Following a Hatch-Job peace agreement, one of the opposition parties, NATO-funded uh, National Islamic Front, a subsect of the Muslim Brotherhood, joined Nimerian governments. Others, such as the Umar National Party, joined for a short period but self-dismissed from government and fled the Sudan into political, in, uh, political exile in the UK. Um, following that confrontation with the political parties, Nimeri dismissed from service scores of civil servants on account of their political allegiances. Many left the country and to work and live in the Gulf. His government, not only with that power gap, with that uh, civil service gap, faced the crisis of the loss of the cotton trade, the single crop export commodity which was prescribed to the country by the Anglo-Egyptian government. 
What's known as Egyptian cotton is really Sudanese cotton, and it was regularly exported by Sudan to turn the cotton mills on fabric mills in Manchester and Lancashire. Trade liberalization under the general agreement on tariffs and trade meant that Sudanese cotton was not protected by the Sudanese government and had to compete with much cheaper U.S. imports. Cotton sales, once known as Sudan's white gold, failed to compete against the U.S. cotton, and this led to an economic crisis, depreciation of the Sudanese currency. Nimeri's government once again failed to act. What started off as a pro-Warsaw bloc socialist government changed sides under the influence of the National Islamic Front and quickly became one of NATO's top allies and the third most funded uh, country by the U.S. in the Middle East after Israel and Egypt. In 1983, Nimeri declared Sharia law in Sudan. The immediate closure of all alcohol outlets and bars, harassment of citizens, public brutal prosecutions, and the hanging of a Jamhurin uh, sect leader, Mahmoud Muhammad Taha. Sharia law, as well as his plans to create a hydroelectric dam in Jongele State in South Sudan, potentially drying up <coughs> the drying up the, the, the marshland in, in South Sudan led to the emergence of Anania II. This is the second wave of resistance and second wave of war in, from South, South Sudan. The Sudanese People's Liberation Army, SPLM, led by the self-declared Marxist Dr. John Goran Dimibio. Um, this launched another civil war in Sudan. Although each side uses national interests to justify the war, the war was really a Cold War-based war by proxy between Warsaw-funded SPLM and US-funded government of Sudan. Sudan and the people of Sudan were the field for that war. In 1985, civil unrest led to the toppling of Nimeri, again another revolution that toppled this government. Power was once again handed to a civilian, a civilian democratically elected government. First-hand climate change crisis resulted in the desertification of many parts of the Sudan in the east and in the west. In the early 90s, famine was rife in the Sudan. In the whole, uh, and in this, I would call the Sudan a region because it's two million, at that time it was two million square miles, half the size of Europe, which is four, four million square miles. After succession from southern Sudan, it's now the size of Western Europe. The elected coalition government in 1986 failed to address the crisis. It failed to reverse Sharia law even though taken that this Sharia law was abolished by the revolution, that it is what it is. They failed to govern, failed to pass a single policy through parliament. Meanwhile, war with southern-based southern SPLM continued and ravaged the country. Their problem, lack of basic modern governance skills and governing with the tribal mentality, which meant that new nepotism for the benefit of tribes closer to some leaders was rife, and you cannot really run a government the way a genteel tribal clan leader runs a clan. In 1988, the night flooded, caused the loss of 80% of Sudan's farming uh, products, destroyed homes and lives, and the government once again failed to act. In 1989, the end of the Cold War, the National Islamic Front, which is part of the Muslim, which emerged out of the Muslim Brotherhood, was immediately made redundant by its former NATO allies. The SPLM were again made redundant by the former Warsaw allies. This failure of the elected government to form a functional government or to hand power back to the people and call a national election was a breeding ground for the bloodless, the second bloodless coup by the, the Gen Colonel Omar Hassan al-Bashir, who declared himself to be independent and taking power on behalf of the military. He immediately began a campaign of mass incarceration against any opposition, unlawful abductions and torture. But soon his true face emerged as not an independent military officer, but the face of the Muslim Brotherhood through and through. 
the government, unrecognized internationally, was isolated. Poverty and scarcity of basic commodities were rife. Brutality, torture of citizens in what became known as ghost houses was commonplace. Massacres, forced military subscriptions, scores were sent to die in the front lines in the war in South Sudan with the SPLM. What followed was resistance from the these political parties and groups and, uh, who formed an alliance of 69 individuals, political parties and movements, and they called themselves the National Democratic Alliance. And they started a law, inten a, a, a law intensity war, uh, military campaign against the government for Eritrea and South Sudan. In 1996, the National Islamic Front, which was born out of the Muslim Brotherhood, transformed its political party and called itself the National Congress Party. Under the banner of Islamatization, it captured every state apparatus, every official, regional, and local government apparatus, every trade union, press office, and NGO. In 2001, the government started to drill for oil. It launched a scorched earth campaign in the United States to clear the land for oil exploration, displacing over 200,000 Sudanese and killing many. But, you know, and that was going on in the absence of any news coverage. It was going on in complete silence. But to enable itself to trade this new, newfound commodity, the government had to reach out and, and gain legitimacy internationally. So they reached out to the uh, political parties that made up the National uh, uh, Democratic Alliance to reach agreements and sign treaties in order to gain the international legitimacy needed to launch this newfoundly found pot of gold, which is oil. Sudan's income from one oil field in the United States, which is now in southern Sudan, was $67 million a day. In 2002, they reached an agreement with most of the political parties in the National Democratic Alliance, Bar 3, the Beja Conference, Democratic Unionist Party, the original, and the Alliance Power. And many in the, the National Democratic Alliance joined the, the, the ranks of the government. Only a few remained in opposition. In 2003, a new war front erupted in Darfur. Darfurians suffering years of marginalization took up arms. The government's counterinsurgency on the cheap militarized local tribal men and bandits to curb the rebellion. They became known as the notorious Janjaweed. What resulted was the worst human crisis, humanitarian crisis at the turn of the century. 300,000 are estimated to have died, over 2 million displaced, a crisis that was only eclipsed by the much worse Syrian crisis. In 2005, the SPLM and the National Congress Party signed the peace agreement. The, Darf the war in Darfur was still ongoing at the time. This created, the, the peace agreement created a five-year transitional coalition government and an autonomous government in South Sudan, ending with a referendum um, in, in, southern, in the southern part of the country and a general election for the two Sudans in April 2010. These transitional governments included armed movements and other political parties who were previously joined in 2002 as part of the National Democratic Alliance. Before the end of the war, Eastern Sudan was on the offensive and ready to launch civil war. Peaceful protesters in Port Sudan, a major city in Sudan and a port in the east were brutally murdered by the government. Marginalization of the region, poverty created a rift between the east of, and the government. Both wars, the one in, in Darfur in the west and in the east were partially paused through badly hashed peace agreements in 2006. And everyone gazed, everyone's gaze now turned to rebuilding the country whilst these uh, low intensity wars were going on and achieving a certain level of stability in the hope of voting out Bashir and his party in the 2010 elections. 
in the lead up to 2010, youth and other activist groups began to emerge to campaign against the election of the National Congress Party, most notably Grifna, which, who, which means we are disgusted and Sudan changed now. The National Congress Party, as we, we was expected, won the, the, the national election on April 2010 with a resounding majority, winning every seat in the National Assembly. In opposition to this impossible victory, opposition parties began to take to the streets and began holding regular but small demonstrations to the National Assembly buildings. Following the South, the South Sudanese referendum results, who chose to unanimously split from Sudan in January 2011 and form a separate state, and in the beginning of the dominant effects of the Tunisian-launched Arab Spring, a new youth group emerged called Youth for Change Spark, and they used Facebook to call for mass demonstrations on the 30th of January 2011. They were crushed brutally. Over 180 were abducted from the streets, locked up in what some describe as battery farm chicken cages. Many were tortured mercilessly. There was total media blockout. Mobile phone recordings were seized and destroyed, as well as deployment of banded mercenaries to plant fear in the hearts of the demonstrators. Although this was completely crushed, this started the shift in the location of resistance from armed ethnic groups in Darfur, North Sudan, Kassala, and East Sudan, and the political parties to youth groups, some of whom were affiliated politically, others who weren't. And they were calling for resistance by all peaceful means necessary, with ideas for freedom, human rights, civil participation and governance, decent living, and above all, freedom, peace, and justice. They'd hold street-to-street -street speeches. When they got arrested, they moved to nearby Egypt and kept communicating via Facebook. When Facebook accounts were hacked, they used aggregate media sites. When these accounts were hacked, they moved to Twitter and created their own blog posts. They were the media during the media blockout. They were dis dissecting the government's complete failure, exposing Bashir's shortcomings. One of the famous, one of the famous page book faces, such as Bashir Days, turned Bashir into a spitting image caricature. Um, turned Bashir into a spitting image caricature, and without the need to actually create a puppet, he was the star of his own show, nicknamed the Dancing President. Like I said, it was peaceful by all means necessary. The second call to action for demonstrations was at the transport hub in Khartoum Bahri in March 2011. It was met with heavy clampdown that commuters getting off the buses to say change buses or to use a different transport route were arrested. At that time, the doctors who were fed up with lack of proper medical provisions and other salaries called for a walkout strike wearing their medical coats and scrubs. They stood in solidarity with each other. Me meanwhile, the government immediately called in reserve medics to, take, to, to, curb the, to ruin the curb strike. The doctors started to form a parallel trade union. In November 2011, tribal groups displaced from their homes by a construction of a dam presented a memo to the local government in Nahranil state, asking for their rightful compensation. The government rejected that memo. They immediately held a sit-in on Justice Square outside Nahranil state government office. The Manasir sit-in lasted 180 days and nights, and news of that sit-in spread like wildfire across Sudan and drew solidarity from Sudanese tribes and political parties, Sufi sets, activists, protests. That winter, the universities across Sudan simmered and boiled. This, the youth groups, as well as ongoing messages for human rights, peace and justice formed the seeds of the revolution. In March 2012, the journalists formed the, uh, the journalist network. 
the summer was the summer of 2012 was a summer of unrest. Protests last for at least two months, and over 400 uh, over 4,000 activists were were jailed, um, and were, were were abducted and jailed in a newly built jails. Activists nicknamed them the fridge. They were that cold in a country with a temperature of over 47 degrees. Again, there was a, a mass protest in September 2013, where uh, where, where, uh, where 2,000 were killed as well. But the unrest continued. Localized sittings began to grow around Sudan in northern state and in northern Kurdufan and, and in southern Kurdufan. <coughs> and then that led to eventually all that unrest led to the eruption that happened on the 13th of January. In early January of this year, popular resistance committees began to form to work alongside this, uh, this, the Sudanese uh, Professionals Association. They mobilized support lo locally, led protests locally, and disappeared. There were ghost operators. They'd come out, launch a demonstration, and then disappear into the neighborhood before their demonstration is dispersed by the brutal security services or the Janjaweed terrorist militia. In January 2019, the Sudanese Professionals Association um, Youth opposition movements, NGOs, and families of the Ramadan 1990 massacre martyrs all signed something called the Declaration of Freedom and Change, an umbrella of organizations leading the popular movement. On the 6th of January, there were mass protests across the Sudan in Khartoum, Gadarif, Adbara, Abri, Port Sudan, Northern Sudan, Medani, Jazeera states. Troops began to, to shoot, killing activists, and activists started to fall. They continued to protest. The call out on the 8th of January was in the name of the, call and activist, of the fallen activists. And more were shot. Survivors were taken to general hospitals and people began sitting outside these hospitals. Protests widened and led leading activists were arrested. By the 13th of January, protesters came out from every town, city and village. Key medical aid and support activists were now being arrested. They kept marching. Arms locked so no one would run away when they get stacked with nauseous skin-burning tear gas, metal-enforced truncheons, or even bullets. Hordes were arrested. Known activists were arrested from their homes, workplaces, the streets. But they kept growing and they kept going. Their mission was to reach the presidential palace um, and present, present President Bashir with a no-confidence memo. The number of protesters grew so, so large that the usual tactics of abduction, arrest, and imprisonments and torture were changed to simply arresting the protesters, say, from Omdurman and dropping them off six miles away in Khartoum. Protesters called this Bashir's taxi services. They finally got their chance on the 6th of April. The roaming security services and personnel died down. All of a sudden, hundreds and thousands rushed into the streets and headed into the Army General Command's office. They handed the memo and decided there and then to sit in until the demands were met. The days were followed were absolutely horrendous. Junior Army officers instructed to disperse the sitting recognized some of the civilians in the sitting as their friends and family and refused to disperse the protest, chose instead to protect it. Enforcements were sent from the security service. Gunfire was exchanged between the two, uh, the two services. Protesters were lying down with heavy ammunition was exchanged between them. My nephew, who was tweeting about this, talked about how tough that night was on the 6th of April. He was arrested on the 8th of April, and we were all relieved that he was not dead. Unlucky, unlucky for all of us, many did lose their lives on, that, on, on those days. On the 10th of April, 
larger numbers took to the streets in the follow-up to this across all regions in Sudan, and the government state ministers were being dislodged by mass protests and kicked out from, from their offices into the streets. On the 11th of April, there was the military coup, but the revolution had already happened and was ongoing from the 6th of April. The coup was led by Ibn Auf. He was out from office 24 hours later by popular demand, and in his place stood Abdel Fattah Burhan, who formed the Transitional Military Council. Activists in Khartoum continued their sit-in. Their demands were not met. They did not request a military government. They did this for 47 days and nights in 46 degree heat and during the fasting month of Ramadan. The sitting was encompassed within the barricade. Those sitting in took turns to guard the sitting, clean it, paint it, cover it in art, political rallies, musical, musical concerts were held in that, in the sitting. Improvised music, songs, rapping, tapping. It was a space for youth and freedom funded by Sudanese businessmen, Sudanese diaspora, Sudanese families. Facebook fundraising campaigns raised over half a million dollars. A friend who regularly visited the sitting said the pavements were still scorching hot by the, at, at midnight. But before Ramadan, that's all the, those protesters had the sitting. They were sitting there. They were standing there. They were holding that sitting, sleeping on those scorched, scorching, uh, scorched um, pavements. Those uh, those who were standing on the old metal bridge leading to Khartoumburi were sitting and banging on those 47 degree seared metal all day, all night. During Ramadan, Sudanese business and Sufi sects provided tents, food and water. Whole neighborhoods would cook food and bring it to the sit-in for breakfast. Princesses of Darfur came in with their traditional food containers and stayed for the month. Three major streets in Khartoum were packed with people, food and solidarity. Those sitting, the, those sitting in took turns to take around sacks filled, filled with money saying, if you have some, put in, if you don't, take. But then that, that didn't last. Paramilitary forces uh, affiliated <coughs> to the government began dispersing one of the sittings by using violence and live ammunition on the 15th of May. The protesters then called for a two-day civil strike and defiance. On the 3rd of June, my nephew and nieces were all in the sitting. The air, they said the earth felt thick. We didn't sleep that night, my nephew told me. They called their friends saying, if we were many, they will not attack us. If we were many, they will not be able to kill us. But kill them they did and attack them they did. At six in the morning, the paramilitaries began, began to crawl in like cockroaches from the sewers. They marched thousands upon thousands with heavy machine guns and army jeeps that rattled the streets of Khartoum. They began to shoot indiscriminately, <clears throat> killing and severely wounding civilians whose dream was just peace, freedom and justice. When the shooting began, people in nearby Burri began rushing to the sit-in, but they were blocked from reaching them by the paramilitary convoys. The carnage lasted until four in the afternoon. Those responsible for the killing, the Janjaweed militia, rounded the bodies and tied their legs with breathe blocks and threw them in the Nile. The Sudan went into trauma. The man who was heading that dispersal is EU-funded paramilitary commander Hamedi. The funds were paid to him to curb the route of migrants heading towards the Mediterranean to Europe through the notoriously racist cartoon process. Situation is dire in sub-Saharan Africa. People are facing a perfect storm. The World Bank says that over the past four years, sub-Saharan Africa has experienced more than 1,000 climate change-related crises. They are a major threat to any development, putting any economic development at risk. People's dreams are simple. The freedom not to be subscribed into the army, not to assist the government in crushing their opposition, to get an opportunity to live a decent life. And when they have no choice, but to sit, stay up and fight whatever coercive forces they have at home and to create the home that they 
uh, that gives them the opportunity to live a decent life. When they join others, start building networks, parallel trade unions, local resistant communities, and take on one of Africa's most brutal and longest serving dictators. When they succeed, paramilitaries funded to stop migrants reaching Europe, ordered by Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, United Arab Emirates, and supported by China and Russia, kill them in large numbers. The Transitional Military Council cut off the internet for 40 days, saying it was a threat to national security. Protesters called for civil disobedience during the days of the civil disobedience. No one was seen on the streets. It was 100% successful, including the director and workers of Khartoum Airport. Sudan turned into a ghost town. The youth barricaded and blocked every road, every street, and every alley. The dispersed sitting was spread across Sudan. Sudan became a, one massive sitting, opening the barricades only to ambulances. Four died on the barricades those days. But the, military, the transitional military council was defiant still. On the 30th of June, the Reform and Freedom Coalition called for a million to march on the streets of Sudan and on the streets of every country where there are Sudanese communities. I'm sure that every Sudanese was out on the streets somewhere that day. Negotiations with the uh, Transitional Military Council were restarted under the guardianship of the African Union and the Ethiopian President, Abiy Ahmed, and the new US envoy to Sudan and others. Yesterday, around um, 21 hours midnight UK time, they signed the agreement. But still, we still have a military council as part of, of the Sudanese government, and it's not free yet. And they're still, they're still, they're, they're still brutally oppressing the people. That's it. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Thank you for that, Nama, and I'm, I'm very grateful that Nama went first because she could cover a lot of the history and things which I'm not able to do. Um, <clears throat> so I suppose what I'll try and do is pick up really from where Nama's just finished in part and have a think about what also, by the end of this, what we might do as socialists living in Britain, what we can do to support what's going on in Sudan, because I think that sort of thing is important. I think for me as a trade unionist, for us as socialists, it's important that we can support um, the sort of burgeoning labour movement in Sudan as well. So from what I've read, looking at it, the, the sort of the initial deal that's been thrashed out between the military and the Alliance of Freedom and Change seems potentially fairly rotten. You know, it's, it sets up a council with 11 members, um, five members from the civilians, five members from the military, and an 11th member who, as I understand it, has to be mutually agreed, but the proposed person is a retired military officer. So technically a civilian, but a retired military officer. And I, I understand it, no side gets the veto who the other side is, but given the army control the state and run the apparatus, it seems very much to me that they're the ones, they're the ones in charge. So, and also, not only are they the first ones in charge, but they are literally, in terms of how long the process lasts for, as I understand it, three years, and it can be extended, but the first 21 months, the military get to run it. So from the outset of the agreement, they remain in charge. If it's still going 21 months later, which, I would find very hard to believe it will be in its current form. At that point, it can be transferred to civilian rule. But I think the people in this room and I think people in Sudan and elsewhere can see from history and, and what's happened on the ground and what Namash just described happened only on the 3rd of June. Um, there's right to be very, very cautious about this. Because the people who run the military, as, as, as Namra has outlined, you know, these are not a kind of benign force who've come in 
<coughs> to try and resolve things. These are people who work directly for Bashir. They're people who've committed atrocities, they've committed crimes against humanity. If they could be, they'd be up uh, facing the Hague. Um, and not only this, they've then massacred their own people who they've now signed an agreement with. As part of this agreement, I understand there's meant to be a, a, an a committee of inquiry that looks into what happened on the 3rd of June. But if the military are in control of that inquiry or in control of the state, then it seems to me they're hardly going to find themselves guilty. At best, what they'll do is find some low-ranking officers, some low-ranking soldiers, and say that they were responsible. But Hemeti and the people who've won the Janjaweed and the people that run the RSF, they're not going to find themselves guilty. No. They're not going to put themselves up in the face of the people. So I think that's a real danger. And I think, I don't know if this could have been foreseen in terms of how this agreement's been put together, but it was not that long ago. I think it was only a, a week or so ago where Hemeti thanked the UAE, thanked Saudi Arabia, thanked Egypt for the support they've had as a military council, praised the role of the 30,000 troops that Sudan has sent to aid Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen, and said that they would like to institute a government of technocrats, of independent technocrats, and that that should gain popular support. In effect, he called for popular support for a dictatorship that they would create. So that doesn't seem to me much of a replacement for, for what's been done and certainly does not honour um, what the revolution is about. So the only statement I've seen from the Alliance for Freedom and Change on this, and I don't know if it's accurate, says that what we have realised today is a gateway to the application and the realisation of the goals of the revolution. We will continue our road through a vast partnership with all national forces that have not fallen in the mire of the oppression of the late regime of al-Bashir. But a vast partnership with all national forces that were not part of that oppression can surely not include the military that's just been a part of crushing or trying to crush uh, the dissent. So I don't think that that can make any sense. You know, it'd be interesting to see some more things as they come out. Um, and if the AFC are consenting to the military running uh, Sudan for potentially the next two years, then it seems likely that they are, the military will use that chance to crush civil society, to reshape it, to take it over, and to do the things that, as Nama said, uh, the National Islamic Front and the Muslim Brotherhood were able to do when they, when they became the NCP and take over the institutions. They'll do it in a different way. They won't have quite the same outlook, but nonetheless, they'll seek to take over the state. And that's something... So I think, you know, we should be alarmed by in Britain and, and everywhere else. Um, so I think that one of the things that I think is striking is that there were crowds celebrating this agreement, presumably some level of peace being brought to a region that's just been uh, torn apart with fighting. But RSF militias fired live rounds on crowds celebrating the agreement. And these are the people that are going to be a party to it. So as I understand it, longer standing opposition movements have rejected the deal but some of these are the same people who are implicated in the fighting in Darfur and elsewhere. So they're understandably, they mistrust the government, but they also aren't able to provide an alternative. Um, and I think the other thing that's very worrying internationally is that the deal has not raised the ire of Egypt, Saudi Arabia or UAE. And they were the ones desperate to keep Bashir in power. And now they're not the ones saying this is something that we're really worried about. And it's only a few months ago when Bashir was in charge that the Arab League were using him to go to Syria to speak to Assad effectively as a proxy for Saudi Arabia and start negotiations so that Saudi Arabia could normalise its relationships with someone that they've kicked out of the Arab League 
And that's something that I think we have to be very wary of. The international cooperation between Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the leaders of the Arab League and whatever is going to take place now in Sudan is something that should concern us. They were happy to back Bashir for a long time. Now they're happy to back the Transitional Military Council. And not only that, in a sort of about face, the, the government of Sudan, or as it exists, is now going to deport more and more Muslim Brotherhood members who've been hiding in Egypt back to the Egyptian government so that they can be locked up. So the collaboration between Egypt and Bashir, the collaboration between the military government of Egypt and the military government in Sudan, you know, it seems to be fairly strong. So I think there's a lot that the movement can still do, but there are, those are some of the kind of things that I think we have to be wary of. As I, as I have read it, the AFC says that it will continue to speak directly to the people, it wants to organise mass assemblies, it wants to keep people informed. But if there isn't the pressure of the demonstrations and the strikes that have been ongoing, then that pressure will be severely weakened. So they need to keep up those protests. But the regional, the revolutionary committees, I think are wary of the agreement and do want to keep up those protests. As I understand, there will be protests tomorrow and that's meant to be followed by civil disobedience and a further general strike on the Sunday. So certainly on the ground, people are wary. They know what can happen here. As Nama said, people have got a long history of knowing what happens in coups, seeing them all the time. So. You know, there is, there is definitely still a movement there that hasn't been crushed, but the leadership of that movement um, needs to be able to be held accountable. Um, so those strikes should go ahead, the protest should continue, and the organisation to make sure that it is victory for Egypt, and that, which is one of the slogans that's been used, and what we want to see is victory, not Egypt, is very important. And the example of Egypt is also, I think, one that we can look at, because Egypt managed to go through both a revolution that led to the Muslim Brotherhood getting in power and then they were crushed and ended up with the military coming into power. So uh, there are parallels there that I think can be learnt from and it sounds like some of those things have already been learnt from the protests in, in Tahrir Square. And it's worth thinking about how a small organisation, which maybe doesn't play a big role in a particular movement, can still find itself taking advantage of it and that is also I think a danger. You could see that in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood did not initially support the protests that went ahead. They didn't play a large role. But once those protests started, they found themselves in a key position where they could provide small amounts of defence, where they had various rich businessmen who had the money, and that they could put themselves into key positions in local communities, particularly in poorer communities, where they'd done a lot of sort of charitable outreach, and they managed to put themselves to a sort of head of a movement. And organisations like that, Islamist organisations, despite the fact that in Sudan getting rid of Bashir is getting rid of an organisation like the Muslim Brotherhood, I don't think it should be discounted that people can still find a way of gaining ground and going into that. At the moment, the Muslim Brotherhood will feel on the defensive. Um, and those people are just as likely to want to have calls for greater democracy, for greater involvement in civil society, and for an extension of the right to organise and um, the right to have freedom of assembly. This is the same thing that the Muslim Brotherhood did in Egypt, but of course as soon as it came to power, what it did is shut those things down and weaken those constitutional uh, things that it had asked for in order to consolidate its power, in order for it to maintain its role um, and so that you can criticise you can have freedom, but only within the context of a constitution that enshrines Sharia as, as, as the first principle. So I think that's something that we should um, think about, and that's something in terms of the broader committees. I imagine 
that you want at the moment the broadest possible mass of people to be taking part in these. The trade unions are leading the way in being able to shut down the economy, and that is going to hit the military government um, where we want it to. So, uh, so I think that there are kind of immediate demands and things that maybe we should think about we can do from Britain, um, because we're not in Sudan. I can't say what should happen there. I've only spoken to Nama. I've spoken to your nephew, but I don't know the situation on the ground. It'd be interesting to hear more people there. But certainly in Britain, as Nama's already mentioned, the cartoon process, which is something that Britain, on the one hand, is very fond of putting lots of money into and championing, and at the same time, it will be willing to say, oh, what the military are doing in Sudan is terrible. The crushing of this, of this movement is, is against all human rights, while giving money to the same people to do exactly the same thing of rounding up torturing, detaining migrants. So we should call for an immediate end to that process. And I think there are protests and things that we can do uh, along those lines. We should be pressuring the Labour movement and the Labour Party to do something similar. And I think the same is, is there for Saudi Arabia. The Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn has made a kind of big push about the arming of Saudi Arabia and how this is terribly bad and what's happening in the Yemen is a disgrace. And all of that is true. But we should also say that making alliances with Saudi Arabia and allowing Saudi Arabia to have the influence it does uh, amongst the Arab League and amongst these countries is also something that we should be against. So I think that we can take a much more proactive role in Britain and elsewhere in making sure we protest against those interests and expose what organisations like the Arab League are doing. They're not a friend of democracy in any sense. It's an alliance of monarchies, military dictatorships and you know hard, hard rights kind of Islamist movements. So Western governments can't on the one hand condemn military repression and on the same hand fund it. Um, we should condemn that. And the Sudanese protests also give us the opportunity to foster greater ties with the labour movement. Um, as I said, I'm a trade unionist. Lots of people in this room are as well. We should be getting more to get our trade unions to make links with the Sudanese professional associations where they exist in the diaspora and elsewhere to try and bolster that labour movement, give it confidence, bring it the solidarity it needs, bring it the funding it needs where necessary. And that international solidarity is important. We as Workers' Liberty did some of that around the Arab Spring in Egypt when the workers' movement there was, was on the rise. That was very important work, and I think we should continue to do that. So I'll say that the labour movement is not about making deals of convenience. It is about fighting for a better world and about building that international solidarity. I think what's going on in Sudan presents us with the opportunity to put that into practice and we shouldn't waste our chance. This audio and the meeting it was recorded at were brought to you by the Alliance for Workers' Liberty. We are an organisation which aims to build a movement which can replace capitalism current economic and social system based on class division and exploitation, with a new society based on consistent democracy, collective ownership and solidarity. Socialism. We are involved in many movements, struggles and campaigns. Our central focus is the organised labour movement, including trade unions and the Labour Party. Our organisation exists to educate and organise socialists so that we can transform the labour movement into a force capable of liberating the working class and humanity by overthrowing capitalism. To find out about future meetings, to browse our articles, publications and other audio and videos, to find out more and get involved, please visit our website at workersliberty.org.